Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Nikki Vargas, author of the new book, Call You When I Land, a memoir. Uh, Nikki, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So congratulations on the new book and that phrase, Call You When I Land, it has a special meaning for you and for your family. Yes. So there's the obvious meaning that we all promise our loved ones before we take off, we'll call you when I land, when we reach our destination. And that's something that, of course, my family does as well. But the other meaning of call you when I land, which I think lends itself so nicely to the book, is this memoir is a real coming of age story. And so much of it is rooted in travel. And there's such evolution in my career, in my love life, and with myself. So it also becomes a promise to my loved ones that I'll call them when I land on the woman I'm meant to become and the career I'm meant to have and the relationship that feels right. So it has sort of two meanings there, which I think really encapsulate the book. Yeah, it's about it's about a bit more than just landing at JFK. It's more existential than that. It's about you landing as a person. Absolutely, yes. That's a beautiful way to put it. And you know, I I think that uh, there's there's a third element uh, in this as well that it it seems to me that you know traveling and flying uh, in this context, as as you say, kind of right uh, near the beginning of the book. Um, there is also an element of running away too. running away from reality, I think is the phrase that you use. Uh, tell us about that. Oh, gosh, 100 percent. So the book is divided into three parts, as you well know. The first part, turbulence, all the chapters within that section are very turbulent. And within that section, travel becomes a means of avoidance, of running away and really just not confronting major life decisions I'm making that have a knack to really define my adult life to come. And as the book progresses into part two and three, you see that relationship to travel ultimately evolve. It becomes something like I compare it to Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree, where I start to use it as a means to really siphon off stories and social media posts as I pursue this career of being a travel writer and editor. And then eventually it becomes almost like greeting an old friend where I learned to appreciate that everything I've come to value from my husband to my friends to my job have come out of travel. So there's a real evolution with travel as a whole throughout the book. Yeah, and it's that, it's that ability, uh, it seems to me, of travel to completely transform. As yet, at one stage, you talk about being able to do that almost at a molecular uh, level. But uh, but it, it can also blow up your life um, as it did for you. And and the book raises so many fascinating questions about uh, things like motherhood and marriage, suburban life, these these kind of things, as you say, as part of that coming of age story for you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, the book begins with and I love how you put it, you know, travel kind of blows up my life and it really does. Because you find me at the very beginning of the book on the brink of getting married, running away from this big New York wedding that I have passively been involved with that is now days away. And you see me running away to the jungles of Argentina, to Iguazu National Park, and having this sort of clandestine confrontational meeting with myself out in the wilderness. It's, it's, it's Julia Roberts as a travel writer, if you like, the runaway bride. 
Oh, I love that. It is. It is. It's very much that it literally is a runaway bride. And the reason I wanted to start the book in that moment and then sort of rewind and build back up to that moment in time is because I really believe that that moment is when the whole story shifts and where you see me really confront myself, stop running away from myself, stop using travel in this sort of unhealthy, avoidant way and really take back my life. And then you start to see a lot of changes and evolutions and growth coming out of that moment that was in the jungle. But travel really was just a passion for me. It was an opportunity to not only travel, which I love, but also to pursue writing, which I also love. And so when I locked in on this career of wanting to be a travel writer and pursuing it with everything I had, it completely restructured my life at that moment in time. And as you say, completely blew it up but in the best way possible because it set me on course. And the book is about travel and finding yourself, but it, but it is also as part of that story about identity. Um, when you, to use that phrase, run away, um, it's to South America, to Argentina uh, in this case. But, but South America is also where you were born uh, in Bogota, in Colombia. So, you know, in some ways, that's a return to, uh, as I say, the, the place where you were born. Yes. And thank you for calling that out. Absolutely. The book is first and foremost a travel memoir, but there's so much in there that I think readers don't necessarily expect because you have a love story. You have a career story with all its ebbs and flows and highs and lows. And to your point, you have a story about identity and heritage and acceptance. And that really circles around Colombia and me embracing my Colombian heritage, understanding what it means to be Colombia and reconciling the fact that I'm this white passing Latina who grew up in Chicago and immigrated to the States at a young age and felt for a very long time that I couldn't claim that identity as my own because I didn't look or sound a certain way. So you see a lot of growth and acceptance there and which always throws readers for a loop. There's also a little bit of a murder mystery in the memoir, too. So it really is so much more than just a travel memoir in the classic sense of I went to this destination and had this epiphany. There's really a lot there that I think surprises readers. And, in, you know, in many ways, it's, it's so much a modern story as well. As, as you say, you grew up in this Chicago suburb. Um, but so you're you're Colombian, but you're also American. And at one stage you say, you know, I, I, I wish that yeah, as a child that I, I wish I looked and sounded more Colombian. It just seemed unfair, you say. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, I think that's so indicative of where I was at that point in time and not fully understanding or embracing the fact that to be Colombian is diverse. There is no one way to look Colombian or sound Colombian. Colombia is a very diverse country. And um, it took me growing up, going back to Colombia and reconnecting with that heritage to fully embrace my Colombian background. And that was a journey I wanted to share within Call You When I Land because it was also such a part of that growth and evolution. Although Colombia was very much present uh, in your home, you draw a wonderful picture of your grandmother who lived with you during your early childhood and 
actually one of my favorite moments in the entire book is when you're traveling, you're in India. Um, sadly, she'd kind of passed away quite recently. And, and you think about dropping her bracelet uh, into the Ganges in India, you know, a very spiritual thing to do. But, but then reality interrupts and, and you hear her voice kind of saying, no, it's too polluted. And, and you know that she would disapprove. So there, there is this kind of wonderful sense in which through family, uh, Columbia is, is present even as you're growing up in this Chicago suburb. I love that you called out that specific part of the book because it means so much to me because it pays homage to my late grandmother. And it was really through her that I felt Columbia be a presence throughout my childhood. And it was because of her that I felt it in the music and in the food and in the atmosphere around my home growing up. And it allowed me to not only become curious and intrigued with this culture that was at once present and very removed from me, but it also ultimately drove me to connect to Colombia as an adult and to go and claim my dual citizenship in Colombia and to go back to Colombia and to really make it a presence in my adult life to really forge that connection that had sort of let loose once my family immigrated here because there was such a such a pressure on which I think is a very classic immigrant story of acclimating and trying to just sort of fit in with American culture that you tend to let go of your own. And so I really um I really appreciate that you called out that part of the book because I I, I wish my grandma could have read it. So you're you're discovering yourself. This is this is when you're in your twenties, and a lot of the story kind of takes place. And but you know uh, you'd moved from Chicago in in that classic uh, wonderful town journey uh, from Ohio to New York. Um, you had a fashion PR internship. Eventually, you ended up in advertising, uh, but it wasn't really your natural milieu. There was always that pull to do something else and to make something of the passion that you had for travel? I like to say I took the scenic route in my career and I liken it to almost going to a store and trying on sweaters. And each career was like an itchy sweater that didn't fit because it wasn't writing. And that is what I wanted to do. That is what I studied. I graduated with a journalism degree and it took me a while to get to where I needed to go. And a lot of that was opportunity. There was not a lot of opportunity at the time. And, and opportunity still dwindles within the media space. But part of it was also just youthfulness and trying to please others. And I was told at almost every turn that this is not a viable career, that this is an unstable career, and that I have student loan payments and I'm living in New York. And to be a writer is really a pipe dream. And it's a testament to where I was in my life at that point that I let other people really sway my life decisions. And it wasn't until that jungle and running away from that wedding did I really stop doing that. And I started to make decisions for myself. And one of those decisions, a very brave decision, is to uh, set up your own magazine, uh, Unearthed Woman. Uh, it becomes an overnight sensation because the, the focus is on iconic women travelers. Essentially, it's a feminist travel magazine, and it, it creates a lot of buzz around the topic. It does. Unearth Woman started on a night of unemployment in New York, literally born from the bottom of a wine glass. 
And it was the culmination of not only that moment in time, which was it was in tandem with Me Too and uh, the Time's Up movement, but it was also a culmination of everything I had learned at that point. And so it sort of swirled together to form this nebulous idea of a woman's travel publication that would champion women within the travel space, which is largely influenced and dictated by women to begin with. Women make, I think, about 78% of uh, consumer decisions within the travel media space. So it's really a force to be reckoned with. And it, as you said, had a meteoric rise, unexpected by everyone. Suddenly it went from this idea that was born out of the depths of unemployment to a magazine sold in over 800 Barnes & Noble locations across the United States and Canada. And it had this rise and immediate fall, which is to say the print publication folded after four issues because such as print. But that was really one of the toughest parts of the book for me to write, more so than the calling off of the wedding which was 10 plus years ago, and it's been sort of remedied with time, the Unearthed Woman arc line or storyline of the book uh, is fairly recent. And it's something that I still grapple with. And I'm still sort of looking back and seeing how one thing connected to the next and trying to appreciate those lessons and what they meant. And so that was really one of the more emotionally charged parts of the book for me because it, it just felt like a wound that's still healing. Well, because this is the end of dreaming, you say. Yes, yes. And such a dramatic yet beautiful statement. <laughs> and it's not something I even wrote for the book. It is something that I truly, truly felt at that time. Owner's Woman, because it was everything that I had learned up until that point, and it was every effort and every idea, it was truly just taking everything I had and dumping it into this project and it didn't work out, it felt like I had nothing left to give. It felt like I had just completely emptied my tank and I didn't know where to go from there. And so it really did feel at the time like it was the end of dreaming. And I think that anybody who's started any sort of entrepreneurial project, whether for profit or for passion, can understand the feeling of pouring everything into something and not having it pan out the way you imagine. And that's really what Unearth Woman was. But I felt it was important to share that story because for as much of a failure as I labeled it, so much beauty came out of it too. And I think it's important to recognize that what we see as failures are not always failures. Well, and, it, and it's part of that relationship that you have uh, with travel that it moves from being a, a love affair to an addiction, I think you call it at one stage, to now a, a much more hard-headed professional uh, career as a travel writer, which you, which you have today, but which is in, to a great extent is born out of that experience with the magazine. Yeah, and I think, you know, as I mentioned throughout the book, you really have this evolution with travel, which is ultimately an evolution with a passion that I have. And you see all the stages of it. You see this obsessive pursuit of this passion that feels far-fetched. And like you said, it becomes almost addictive. And then you get it and you have it and it suddenly doesn't feel like it's enough. You reach that horizon and now you're looking at the next thing and the goalpost has moved. And for me, once I got the job as a travel writer and travel editor, suddenly it was, how can I get more? How can I make this count for more? How can I move the needle? 
And then finally, you get to this point where it's just appreciation. And I think that's really the best any of us can ask for from our pursuits and our passions is that you reach a point of just gratitude that you get to do something that makes you happy. And that is really sort of the endpoint journey of where I leave readers with Call You When I Land. Yeah, one of the other aspects to the book that struck me as I was reading was American attitudes to South America that it it still feels to me as if most Americans probably know more about Europe and perhaps the, the Middle East, particularly in the kind of current uh, context, uh, than they do about that vast continent uh, to their south. What, why is that, do you think? I think a lot of it is there's sort of a mentality that's frozen in time when it comes to countries like Colombia, for example, where you have this fascination of the Pablo Escobar years. You have this fascination with the time that the country was in civil unrest. And then you have that fascination being sort of perpetuated with shows like Narcos that are very popular on Netflix and Griselda is coming out on Netflix soon, which looks at one of the biggest Colombian uh, queen pins in the narco world. So all of that is to say that you have this really morbid curiosity almost with what is largely considered one of the worst time periods in Colombian history. And because that's so top of mind and prevalent, Americans aren't really seeing where Colombia is today and they aren't really seeing what the situation is now. And so I think when I talk about sort of the stereotypes of Colombia that are still existing today, I think it's because in the American conscious that history really is not up to date. We're sort of just looking at this crazy time period in the country's history and and there's not as much curiosity with where things stand now. And in my book, one of the things I do is I actually go back to Colombia as a travel journalist and I'm investigating this mysterious murder that happened within my family in the larger context of the political movement and situation happening there, and specifically how FARC, this narco-terrorist organization, is being transformed into a political party, and sort of the peace treaty in Colombia and the monumental ramifications of that. And it's, again, very surprising for the travel memoir for readers, where you kind of have this emotional journey, and then suddenly it's Colombian politics and murder. And then it goes back to sort of this emotional journey. But I felt it was important to include that because you see me trying to grasp what it means to be Colombian. And part of that is shedding my own sort of American stereotypes of Colombia to connect with being a Colombian woman. Yeah, let's let's talk about President Petro then. How do you how do you feel that uh, that administration is going? You know, I think looking specifically at the peace treaty. And what happened, it was such a complicated issue in Colombia because you're taking essentially FARC, you're taking this narco-terrorist organization, you're now giving them guaranteed seats in the Colombian Senate, you're turning them into a political party. But in a way, even though you've now ushered in an era of peace, there's still so much atrocities that had been done and so much genocide that had been done and crimes that had been committed. And so looking at Colombia as a whole, for the Colombian population, there was a lot of unrest there. There was a lot of sentiment around what is more paramount, justice or peace. And for families that directly were directly impacted by FARC, including mine, uh, it gives you a lot to think about, you know? And, and in the book, when I actually go and interview ex-FARC fighters who are undergoing the reintegration process, 
it was a really powerful moment for me to, I describe in the book, confront my big bad wolf and try to find some sort of thread of humanity in what is just a completely messed up situation. But I think today, you know, Colombia ultimately, it has moved forward in a lot of ways. There's a lot of strides, but unfortunately, I do think that it will always be plagued by the sins of its past. And I mean, there, there does seem to have been recently a sense that maybe it's veering off a little bit in the wrong direction. That I mean, it, it, just even a few years ago, Colombia was going through a tourist boom. You'd got those uh, new airlines like Viva providing low-cost air travel around the country. But it does seem to have taken a darker turn recently. There was a terrible story in the news uh, this week of the apparent kidnapping for ransom and then murder of a, an activist and comedian from Minnesota. So, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's easy sometimes to seize on these terrible, terrible tragedies, but, but does, it, does it speak to something bigger, do you think? Well, I absolutely believe that there will always be a fascination with traveling to Colombia. I still see such a demand for trips to Cartagena specifically, and tourism remains booming there. But I think also, as a whole, the whole world feels volatile right now. And unfortunately, in almost, it feels like every country, you are seeing sort of a targeting of people who are outspoken, people who are activists, people who dare to stand up against uh, the larger sort of government message. And in Colombia, it's no different. You know, and I think that I, over at Photos Travel, where I'm a senior editor, we really grapple with arming our readers with the best information possible on how to move through the world safely. And I think part of that is just informing people about what's happening on the ground in these destinations and the situations unfolding. And I think more than ever, if you're a traveler and you're moving through the world, you need to do yourself a service and really educate yourself on the destination you're going to and understand the politics and the culture and everything that's happening there, not only because it's important to understand the destination you're going to, but also as a traveler, because it has a direct impact on how you move through that space and what to expect when you get there. And that's something at Voters Travel that we are also trying to really encourage by the stories that we put out there. And some of the issues for Colombia are outside of their control, that there's a migration crisis on the, on the border with Venezuela. You know, many um, commentators have said that really we're just one step away from a, a complete humanitarian disaster there. I mean, it's, it, it speaks to a wider issue, doesn't it, about the whole question of refugees and, and migration and the, the complexities around that topic. Yes. I remember I was visiting Bogota a few years ago, and I remember walking and there were Venezuelan migrants that were making purses out of the currency from Venezuela because it had lost all value. And it was it was really jarring to witness. And this was an economy that once held so much power. Venezuela also has a lot of oil. So it's it's very scary to see what happened in Venezuela. And to your point, you're seeing this massive migration to Colombia and other countries, but specifically to Colombia because it's neighbors with Venezuela. And what was once a warm welcome uh, by Colombian citizens under President Petro, that, that tide is changing. And 
unfortunately, I think that you see that once again all around the world of how countries treat and welcome or do not welcome people seeking help, people seeking asylum and migrants. And it's um, it's devastating. It really is devastating. And it's such a complex issue. And, and migrants and refugees in South America is, is also something which has a direct impact here in the United States as well. But a lot of the migrants and refugees coming through the southern border uh, are from uh, South America. Yeah, absolutely. And I know here in New York, for example, uh, we see a wave of migrants coming in. And it's been interesting to see how the city has responded from, uh, I believe it's the Roosevelt Hotel that has been transformed into a migrant center. But you see, even with the best intentions, how so many of these services are now at capacity and how tricky it is to try to help everyone. And I truly don't know what the answer is um, because it is just such a complicated issue. But I just hope that people can be kind and understand that these people coming here need help and they need shelter and they need support and they need resources and they certainly do not need hate and they do not need to be vilified. I mean, as you say, these are these are big, complex uh, questions. There are, there are also big, complex questions around travel uh, itself, which is seen very differently and understood very differently now to when you were a, a teenager in the Chicago suburbs dreaming uh, of doing what you're doing now. Of course, you know, we have a more complicated relationship with travel because of climate change and, uh, and so on. How, how do you think that is going to impact travel going forward? Oh, gosh, you're already seeing the impacts of it. You're seeing the way that travelers are being forced, for better or worse, to be more mindful of how they move through the world, uh, to consider their carbon footprint, to, you know, question if that flight is really necessary or can you take a train or how can you move from point A to point B in a way that's environmentally friendly? These are the questions that are going to ultimately shape and define the industry as we move forward. And we're already seeing it. And you're also seeing as a whole, in addition to how we move through the world, you're seeing such a demand in tourism for places that are nature focused and on the brink of disappearing, specifically places in, for example, in the Nordic countries, places that are quiet, places that are nature forward places like Greenland, like Iceland, you're seeing this mix of wanting to escape, disconnect and be away from other people. And I think part of it is wanting to enjoy nature while you still can. I think part of it is after the pandemic, seeking wide open spaces. But the way the travel industry has evolved post pandemic is fascinating to watch. Now, add to that the introduction of AI and how that's completely reshaping travel media and how we cover travel and how we talk about travel and how we plan travel. You're really at this almost inflection point where the industry is going to completely transform. And I, for one, being in the travel media space, working as a travel editor, having built a career on travel, I'm fascinated by how we will move forward. And I hope that it's responsibly and mindfully. And I think that at this point, with global warming, climate change, everything, I think that it's going to really force travelers to be more responsible with how we travel. 
So the book is Call You When I Land, a memoir. It's written by my guest, Nikki Vargas, and published by Hanover Square Press. Uh, but for now, Nikki, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me and for the lovely conversation. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 